Hi, and welcome to Figure Speech, a program from WRBH, where every week you can meet local poets and writers from the New Orleans community and listen to them share their work. This episode, we welcome on Dr. Nicole Cooley, who will be reading from her work, as well as having a conversation with poet Henry Goldcamp. And I'll let Henry take it from here. Hello, and welcome to Figure of Speech. I'm Henry Goldcamp, and today I'm here with poet and writer Nicole Cooley, who's going to read some poems for us today from her newest collections. Nicole Cooley grew up in New Orleans, Louisiana. Her most recent books are two poetry collections, Girl After Girl After Girl and Of Marriage. She's published four other collections of poems, Breach, Milk Dress, The Afflicted Girls, and Resurrection. Her awards include the Walt Whitman Award from the Academy of American Poets, a Discovery the Nation Award, an NEA, a Creative Artist Fellowship from the American Antiquarian Society, and the Emily Dickinson Award from the Poetry Society of America. She is currently completing a nonfiction book project, My Dollhouse, Myself, Miniature Histories, and currently she's the director of the MFA program in Creative Writing and Literary Translation at Queens College City University of New York, where she is a professor of English. Nicole, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks for coming. So we have three collections that you've brought here today, Breach of Marriage and Girl After Girl After Girl. Why did you pick these collections and and what are you thinking of reading from them? Well, I thought I'd start out by actually reading from Breach, which is my book that came out in 2010, which is very much about my family's experience during Hurricane Katrina. And then I'd move on and read a couple things from my two most recent books published um, in the last year and a half. That sounds great. I read in another interview that you did that besides the atrocity of Katrina, that it was especially heart-wrenching for you because your parents were here and you were not. You had left, but your parents had stayed. Can you speak about that a little bit? Yeah, it was, you know, I think it was an experience that a lot of us have now watching a disaster unfold on our screens and we can do nothing about it. My sister, my brother, and I were all out of the city. My parents were here and didn't evacuate. So we were very worried about them the whole time. And we couldn't reach them. The phones were all down. But I could simply watch familiar landmarks disappearing on TV, like literally watch things be destroyed and could do nothing, couldn't find my parents. They were fine in the end, but I didn't know that. So it was terrifying. But I think I think we now have that experience a lot, right? That kind of mediated look at tragedies that we can't do anything about, but we are sort of forced to bear witness to. Well, let's uh, let's read some poems on the tragedy. Great. Okay. So I think I'm going to start by reading a poem from Breach. And this is a poem called September Notebook. And it's funny for me as a as a parent, I have two daughters. My um, older daughter was a baby, like a very young baby during 9-11. And we were living in New York City. So this poem speaks to that a little bit. But for some reason, living through 9-11 in New York and Katrina in New Orleans uh, in 2005 are very inextricably connected for me. And um, the other thing this poem brings up is something I never knew about until literally 10 years ago, which is the Great Flood of 1927. Mm-hmm. I was never taught it in my New Orleans elementary school and high school education. And so when I finally read about the flood, I was so shocked that it had happened and I didn't know about it. And it just seemed like such an important precursor to Katrina and explains so much about um, the way we talk about Katrina. So that's in here too. So I'll start with this poem. September Notebook. Like the magic porridge that takes over the town, pours through the village, fills then empties the streets. It swallows everything in September and it happens twice. First in New York, the burning seeped under our apartment door into the window seams. The sharp smell threaded through my daughter's hair for days. I pressed my lips to her head. 
Four years later in New Orleans, water surges over under wrenches houses off foundations. The flood wall cracks, an explosion of gunfire. Water surges around my parents' house. I read that story to my daughter because once upon a time, there were two Septembers in two cities, the one of the towers on fire and the one of floodwaters rising. Once upon a time, my mother read it to me when we leaned together in my canopy bed, where outside the window over the levee, the river was all flat green and quiet. Now someone else is reading me the story. I crawl up on her lap, but she pushes me off and says, don't shut your eyes just because you can't watch TV, the jumping couples from windows of Tower One, the family's attic split open in the lower nine waiting for rescue. Once upon a time, it was the end of August, and I was on the phone with my parents, begging them to leave the city. Fast forward to my parents' repeated answer, this is our home. I was telling my parents to go to the Superdome. Today's American history lesson, the voice says, once upon a time in 1927, white men blew up the industrial canal. With a loud crack, they breached the levees. They wanted to drive the black families out. So when my daughter's class gathers at the flagpole at school for a patriotic song in commemoration of the event, the sky is a pure blue bowl capable of holding nothing. Here is the weather, the voice says, New York's bright sky in both Septembers. Ever since, a clear early fall day is 9-11 weather. I sit beside my mother on my bed. I hold my daughter on my lap. Today's history lesson, it swallows and swallows and swallows. I'd like to sit with her, Our Lady of the Breach, Our Lady of the Burning City, Our Lady of the Uncomforted. I'd like to hold her hands down and whisper the lesson. I'd like to force the floodwaters down her throat. That was beautiful. Thank you. Thanks. You know, it's always it's always so hard to read that uh, line, I have to say, when I, I really did tell my parents to go to the Superdome, and that obviously was a bad idea. Um, yeah. But at the time, during Katrina, when it was the only shelter open, anyway. What so, else, yeah, what else could you say? What else could you say? But every time I read that line, it I always strikes me um, how, okay, I was wrong there, but anyway. Right, a little bit yeah. of regret. Yeah, right. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a really interesting balance to think of uh, sort of marrying those three disasters and sort of, uh, you know, as violent and destructive as they are, is sort of like this balance of fire and water, right? Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and it's sort of, uh, you know, the, and it really touches on sort of some tenets of your work of poets always talk about the mouth, right? We can't help it. But sort of there's that burning and that swallowing in the throat and, you know, that comes up again and again in your work. What do you think is particularly the burning? What is it? What is it about smoke? I mean, of course, it's always changing. But I mean, what draws you to that sort of imagery? That is such an interesting insight. Oh, my goodness. Um, You know, yeah, the throat stuff has always really fascinated me. The throat has and the burning. I think the 9-11 kind of um, entrenched that burning, the burning. I can still smell that smell that we can smell everywhere in the city. Um, that sort of burning idea was really stuck with me as yeah. like a formative early adult experience. Um, my, my wife says the same thing. If she goes, oh, this smells like Katrina. She says that all wow, the time. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. She can, there's like a very specific yeah. sort of that mold and, and the oh, very, a very distinctive mold, right? Yeah. Um, which I'm sure you're, you're familiar with as well. That is so interesting. That is so interesting to me. 
Yeah. You know, it's funny. In my teaching, I always tell my students, we talk about show, don't tell and concrete language. But we've been talking a lot about smell and how um, and how to, you know, incorporate smell into our poems and how to use those sensory details and how they evoke things. And people were writing out lists of those sensory details in class about what people remember, foods their mothers cooked or the smell of their street. And it's just so interesting how all that gets layered with emotion. I mean, really, that whole poem, it was sparked by reading that book about the Great Flood, but it really was sparked by the day of 9-11, the sky was this brilliant blue in New York, and the day of Katrina, the sky was the brilliant blue in New York City, too. And it was that image. So often it's a singular image that sparks a poem for me. It was that blue sky that sparked it. And I, mm-hmm. I thought about it so much in the years past. Those days looked identical in New York City. Yeah, I, I that was very curious in your book of marriage, which you'll read from just in a minute. Uh, you have that descriptor, the sky, 9-11 blue. And it, that was, you know, for somebody who didn't experience it firsthand, it's very, it was very striking, you know, um, yeah. to remember. But, but at the same time, I knew exactly what you meant. Well, maybe you have another Katrina poem about the aftermath, sort of yeah. the, the coming up of uh, rather than the, the disaster itself. Yeah, I do. So this is a poem about Camellia Grill. Awesome. And I was, I went, came back to New Orleans. I used to come back um, every year for the anniversary. And this was the, I came back for the first anniversary and I was walking through the city and I went, I walked up to Camellia Grill and like so many other things, it was closed. And unlike many other places, the entire outside of the restaurant was covered in post-it notes. And there was a little bucket and a stubby little pencil. And <laughs> someone had taken a piece of notebook paper and written on it with like a Sharpie, write a love note to Camellia Grill. And everyone had done it. There were there were so many post-it notes. And I was completely fascinated, and I wrote them all down. There were like 500 of them. There are not 500 in this poem, but I wrote them all. I wrote them all down, and it was it just was like a love letter, not just to Camellia Grill, but to the whole lost city. It was so moving and incredible. And um, and now Camellia Grill's reopened, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm still wondering where the post-it notes are because this was one of it was one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. So. The poem is called Write a Love Note to Camellia Grill, which is what we were told to do. You'll be able to tell what the post-it notes, uh, what the language of the post-it notes are. Write a love note to Camellia Grill. Hundreds of post-it notes stuck on the windows. Dear Camellia Grill, I can't bear the thought of you not being here. Dear streetcar, gone, that shuttered down the avenue. Dear neutral ground, effaced. Last meal at Camellia, 18 days pre-K. Potato, onion, and cheese omelet. Pecan waffle, chocolate freeze. Dear dead bleached grass. Dear leaf choke gutters. Dear drainage pumps. Late night here drunk and loved it. Dear levee. Dear rusted barge. Dear rope swing. Your milkshakes bring all the boys. So many of us grew up eating here. We need you to open to feel more normal. Dear empty grill. Dear freeze machine. Dear jar of marmalade. Your phone book split and open on a table. My parents dated here and I dated here. Dear chrome and glass, dear counter, sparkled linoleum. Dear girl I once was, smoking at that counter, writing boys' names on a napkin. New Orleans has lost Schwegman's K&B McKenzie's. It can't take another New Orleans establishment to be gone forever. Dear wind that distills the empty city. I will come every day with a hundred people. Dear damage. I had my first date here. We got married. Come home. Dear forgotten, I'm going to stay hungry forever. Dear girl I once was. Dear lost city. Dear girl now standing at the window reading, I'm pregnant. Come back. (laughs) So 
How did you fit that entire poem on a post-it note? <laughs> I know, right? I, I did write I did write something on a post-it note, but it was something like that I don't even remember. I it, just, so that's not, your oh, no, post-it note is not no. in the poem. My post-it note is not, because my post-it note was so much less interesting than someone saying, like, we had our first date here and got married. I right. Mean, it's so, reading it now, these years later, actually, it's just so plaintive and, and sad. And, um, I mean, I right after Katrina, it was also very quiet because the streetcar wasn't running. So all that whole Carrollton intersection felt so weird and silent. Just with, very eerie. Very and, eerie. Yeah, very yeah. eerie. Yeah, exactly. Thank you for that. That was a, That's a wonderful poem. I think a lot that'll resonate with a lot of our listeners. Um, and yeah, Camellia Grill, if you're out there, we'd like to know where those post-its are. <laughs> Maybe we'd like another look at those. Um, just the, the, the visceral of just what, what, even just somebody listing what the last meal they had there yeah. was a potato and cheese omelet. Uh, it's just so, so nice with the details. And you seem to be really, you do this really masterfully where you sort of do, a lot of your poems are sort of like half found poems. You're sort of able to sort of grab, especially with a lot of your poems will take the etymology of a word and sort Uh, of like, and it really breaks it down. And it really sort of is, it's intriguing how even the antiquated or obsolete definitions of a word, like tracing it back to its origins you sort of make magic out of that. Is there is there a poem in the next collection, Girl After Girl? Um, I know the sort of section breaks do that a lot. Uh-huh. Um, there's there's probably several, or, or just something yeah. else from, from the next one. Yeah, um, actually, there is. I would love to read a poem about that. So I've always been, I've, I'm someone who doesn't believe in writer's block. This makes my students crazy. Um, and so for me, I have a teacher in grad school said to me, if you have writer's block, lower your standards which I love, so you can always write something bad. But one thing that I reason I don't believe in writer's block is because there's so much language around us in the world to take. And I have to say, like, dictionaries are just the best thing in the world. So if you're stuck, you open a dictionary and there you go, Agreed. right? Yeah, and if you want to know, if you, you know, you want to learn the meaning of a word or you want to just play around with language, a dictionary, either online, a regular dictionary, whatever, is just the most fun thing. So I've always loved um, dictionaries, and a lot of my poems start with that. I've always thought that, like, I can't sit down and write a poem with a blank piece of paper or a screen, but if I have, like, a photo of my grandmother, a dictionary, and an old uh, train ticket, I'm in business. There you go. You know what I mean? And so a lot of my work is sparked by that. So I'll read a poem that actually, it's the first poem of the book, and it's called Mad Money. Oh, this is a good one. And it's sparked by um, the definition of um, the word nostalgia, which I was like, hmm, nostalgia, that's interesting. And I looked it up, and the meaning was completely other than I ever thought it would be. It's also... This poem is about, um, it's about mad money, which is a super fascinating concept um, of money that you should bring. The concept was invented in 1922 in the Bryn Mawr College um, Alumni Magazine, oddly. Money that you bring on a date in case you have a quarrel or you need to go home because your date is awful. And um, mad money is, you know, nowadays there are still some people who... um, who carry mad money with them. Right, a little $20 bill folded up behind the driver's license. Yeah, Yeah. but there's also this really weird thing where of mad money jewelry that came out um, earlier in the 20th century where lockets where you have a tiny, I have one actually, a tiny dollar bill folded up, mad money brooches where you can slip a tiny 20, 20, tiny, tiny, tiny in in there. So it's like a very weird, interesting thing. So between the word mad money, the concept of mad money and the definition of nostalgia, that's what generated this poem. So, um, okay, mad money. When I find my mother's jewelry box, blonde leather, impossibly 50s teenage, desire fills my chest like dirty shredded Kleenex, desire for my mother's 16-year-old self. Beside the place for pearls, a drawer labeled mad money. Inside the drawer, blue soap crumbled to dust and three nickels I set in my mouth, wanting silver bitterness. Money she saved so she could run away? 
The first nostalgics were men at war, mercenaries in the French army longing for their villages. Originally a medical condition, nostalgia in the 18th century meant severe homesickness, a disease. Nostalgia from German Heimweh, Greek nostos, homecoming, and algos, pain or grief. My nostalgia is never a lovely wishing, but instead soldiers marching through yellow fields dizzy with nausea. When I open her jewelry box, I want to lie down on my mother's twin bed on clean white sheets to let go of my body, to become the girl she was, mother, not mother. Under my tongue, her coins are cool and slick, and I'm sick for a home I never lived in. I slip on my mother's pink coat from high school, color of a Dairy Queen dipped cone, color of a flushed cheek after a slap. That was wonderful. Thank you. That's a really interesting concept, and I can totally see how you sort of stem from these ideas. You do these research, and you can't help but write about it. Or it's just like, oh, is it is it that simple for you when you discover something as interesting as like Mad Money and the history behind it? Uh -huh. Where you're just like, oh, that's a poem. Like, what angle did you work into that poem from? Was it sort of uh -huh. this this imagined mother? And I really love. I mean, as poets, it's so important to do the empathy of, of stepping into another's shoes. And so often our parents, we just think of, they're always older than us, so therefore they're always a figure in that way. But of course they were our age once and, and they yeah. had the same, they're going through the same thing. So you think about, you know, your mother, is, or the speaker's mother rather, is a teenager, pink jacket. You know, it's it's really beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, the poem really came up, I, this jewelry box of my mother's, I can picture it vividly. I have no idea where it is now. Her 16-year-old jewelry box was fascinating to me when I was a young teenager. It just seemed very glamorous. Mm. Um, and the Mad Money box was was uh, really interesting. And I recalled that. And then I, I guess I was thinking to myself, I was wanted to write about the jewelry box. And then I thought, nostalgia, I'm going to look that up. And then I thought more, you know, why am I nostalgic for a life that wasn't even my own? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I got really interested in that. Um, and it all kind of spin, spun together. So for me, I think what often generates a poem is a collision of things more than one single thing. Like, again, you know, having the train ticket, the picture of my grandmother and like an old spoon or something. It's like, how do I bring all those things together? Could those things fit together? You know, um, I really en I really enjoy that part of writing, like sparking the magic. Yeah. Like one thing I do a lot of my classes, grad classes and undergrads is I have like a, ve a very weird box of objects in my office, a lot of like strange miniatures and just weird things. And I give them out to people and we write from their point of view. We write towards them. We, you know, we sort of figure out how an object can generate or get us to our deep emotional material. Like, yeah. how does a fork that you've never seen before in your life going to get you to like think about your father? But Absolutely. it can, it really can. Sort so of, yeah, objects as keys and sort of opening yeah. up and sort of a poetic animism about it. I mean, that's why I've always been the kind of person who haunted estate sales and flea markets and yeah. junk stores and thrift stores, because I love nothing more than it, looking at all these weird objects and thinking of who owned them. Right. Yeah. That doesn't surprise me in the least. So after reading your yeah. work, you know, you said uh, it's interesting to think about this jewelry box of your mother's because in another interview at, uh, on Girl After Girl After Girl, this collection, you, you sort of said, this was my angle. These were poems about weird museums. That was with Gail, oh, yeah. Gail Walden. Yeah, yeah. And so this is sort of like your own personal history yeah. museum. Um, but is there another another sort of strange museum in the book that you would want um, to oh. touch on? Or Yeah, yeah. Maybe from my book of marriage has some of this too. So I spent a lot of time going to weird museums. There are a lot of them. There are a ton of them in Connecticut for some reason. The Locke Museum, the Carousel Museum, the uh, clock museum. And then there are a bunch in the South as well. 
And so I've spent a lot of time going into them. And the reason I do that is because, well, they're interesting, but they give you a new language. Mm. And I think it's always really important to be shifting up your lexicon as a writer and finding new words. And so when you go into like the um, clock museum, which is really weird and run by two sisters. It's in Bristol, Connecticut, I think. Um, and you're the only person in these museums, like the Georgia Rural Telephone Museum. You know, they always claim a crowd has just left. Um, but um, but what's really cool about it is you, you go around and you just get all of this new language. And I just would go into museums and fill notebooks, writing all this stuff down, like the Georgia Cotton Museum. Okay, let me write all this stuff about cotton and see what happens. So this is a poem that's about a mineral museum that I actually went to on a field trip with one of my daughter's classes. It's in Franklin, New Jersey, and it was really, really fascinating. And it was fascinating because of the language, the names of all these rocks. It was so bizarre and interesting. It was also fascinating because they had all of these mannequins pretending to be miners. Um, so I just spent the whole time, like, sitting on the grass, like, taking notes and thinking about um, the Mineral Museum. And as you can see, like, I'm going to read the poem, but it's not really just about a mineral museum. It really is about, like, what the Mineral Museum sparked in my head. So, um so it's called Marriage, the Franklin Mineral Museum. And I should say that, so I did go on the field trip. I went on the field trip twice. I liked it so much I went back with the second daughter. Yeah. And then I took my whole family out there because I thought it was so interesting. And um, I thought my daughters would like it and my husband. Marriage, the Franklin Mineral Museum. You and I start in the underworld, in the zinc mine. Perfect replica with a linoleum floor and a mannequin holding a carbide lamp. We start at the mineral dump at the bottom of the hill. We start with rocks. Teaspoon by teaspoon, we dig in the quarry to find the magic rocks. Rocks the color of a pink washcloth to scrub a baby's leg, her back. Rocks the size of a fist. The gravel pit is splintered light, all ash and bone, and our daughter wants to talk about Patriot Day in school. Now the kids are allowed for the first time to tell their stories. Some weren't born, most were babies. She says, B's mother would have died that morning, but she was home with him because he was a baby. The place where she works burned down. Rock, a dilated eye. Rocks glowing green as iceberg lettuce, fever bright. Rock, a split heart. Rock, all ventricle. Rock, hard arterial under the earth where the E-train rushes. The day I waited at the escalator at the top of the path terminal to tell you about the baby. Teaspoon by teaspoon. Our daughter wants me to repeat the story of how I held her on my lap, how we watched TV while the tunnels shut down, how we sealed the windows with towels and cloth diapers to keep the smoke out. Now, at the shack on the hill, we wash rocks in a bucket of mud water. We bathe them in mineral light so they light up, too fluorescent. Flinkite for fidelity, autovite for hold me close, albite for just get up off the mattress. Rocks spilled and spilling, too bright. Take me to the local room, the fluorescent room, the fossil room, the safe room, the room without history. Thank you. So this is sort of a implied metaphor, right? I mean, wouldn't you say? I yeah. mean, we do this a lot. I mean, there's so many great poems that we'll get to here. Um, we are uh, getting a little short on time, but there's so many, you know, the entire book of marriage, every single poem is about marriage. And there's this series of nice, short uh, similes that I, I would I would think would be great if you would finish on those. Yeah, I would love to. Yeah, so the middle section of this book, this book is so weird. It was a side project while I was working on other things. I was like, let me just do something fun. Let me write short poems. I'll give myself an assignment because I never do. And I started writing them. And, of course, like, 
there are maybe 15 short poems in the book, and I probably wrote like 600 because a lot of them were terrible. Mm-hmm. But I got to say they were really fun. Right. They were just really fun. So my assignment was to write poems about marriage, make them short, and they had to play with metaphor. Um, and I would I would just have a blast doing it. And then I put them together. I was like, oh, some of these are actually interesting. So I, I can definitely close with a few of those. Yeah, they were really, I mean, I would I would sit on the subway, like thinking, writing these. I would write them like in like, the grocery store. Um, they just felt like a very informal, low stakes project in the best way. And then, you know how it is, you trick yourself into doing something that feels like it's not a big deal. And then it, you actually fall in love with it and want to keep working on it. And it turns into a book. Uh, yeah, a book by Alice James, no yeah. less. <laughs> yeah, so I can read a couple of those. Okay. Marriage as a skateboard flung off a bridge and into a creek, graffitied, stickered red, wheels chipping and sticking on asphalt on grass. You want the skate park's clean lines, its lovely concave shape, its bowl reflecting light, but this, instead, your mud stuck in a bog, your knees scattered with gravel you want to lick off, swallow down, but you know you'd choke. Mm. Marriage as light socket, loss, as if you could lock your teeth against it, or slam the front door to keep it out. To keep the baby safe, we sealed the house as if against bad weather. Nailed our dresser to the wall, plugged the outlets up with plastic to shut them up. (laughs) Marriage as a roll of aluminum foil. Wife of cardboard, husband of twine. In the kitchen, avocados soften, blacken in the wedding bowl. The sun, a bitter yellow lozenge. Oh, please go on to the next. It's my favorite one. It's my favorite one on the next one. You're so nice. Marriage as a velvet lined saxophone case. Plush and restless, rotted, this body wants to fold inside your own. Remember how we knelt at the altar, the soles of my wedding shoes flashing back like red tongues. That was the image that (laughs) that really got me in this whole collection because it's just so perfect when, you know, I can picture it perfectly, you know, either Jenny flecking or kneeling and it goes right out. Well, thank you so much. Unfortunately, we're out of time. I have so much more that I would want to say about this. But um, if you want to dive into it, it's Of Marriage by Nicole Cooley through Alice James' book and also Girl After Girl After Girl through LSU Press. Thanks so much, Nicole. Thank you. This was super fun. That was Dr. Nicole Cooley reading from her own work as well as having a conversation with poet Henry Goldcamp. And that's our show. You've been listening to Figure of Speech, a community poetry and writing program from WRBH. Tune in Saturdays at 1 p.m. and every Monday at 9 p.m. for more great New Orleans writing. Thank you for listening.